Mm, interesting seeing who's showing up. And where are you, Martin, if, if I may? I'm in Petersfield. Petersfield, okay. We're in uh, the other side of the country in um, Newcastle. So nice, nice to see you. Yeah. Uh, wh which part of the country did you say in? Well, we're, we're, in, we're in Gateshead technically, but we're, you know, just across the river from Newcastle. Ah, lovely city. Yeah. When we, uh, when we had to do a big repair to our car, uh, my wife said, oh, we live on top of a hill and we haven't got a car. What should we do? I said, we'll catch a train north. And we went and spent a week in Durham. <laughs> and we actually spent, um, uh, we spent a day in Newcastle and Gateshead. It was an amazing, amazing trip for us because neither of us know that part of the country. Yeah. Yes, uh, it's got its own character. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. What I particularly loved was... Uh, Discovering Durham Cathedral. Good evening, Nigel. Hello, Martin. Nice to see you. Always nice to see you. Thank you. Hello, Nigel. It's Pat. Pat. Oh, we. Hello there. Hello. Good how are you? To dress up for us. <clears throat> you it's very nice to see you. Indeed. You're specially dressed for the evening? Um, no, I put my um, teacup on so as not to spill my supper on my sweater. Ah, good, good, good. <clears throat> a necessity, I'm afraid. Sorry? A necessity, I'm afraid. Ah. Mm. Yeah. I've, I've, I've swapped manor coffee for a glass of wine. Yeah, we've got to mark it. <clears throat> Martin, we haven't met. I'm Pat Harvey. Hi, Pat Harvey. Yes, I'm an old Libriite. And where are you living, Pat Harvey? I live in southwest London, sometimes known as Twickenham. Twickenham, yes. Oh, there's, there's something going on there tomorrow, isn't there? Probably a rugby match, I don't know. <laughs> it's the only thing that ever goes on in Twickenham. Well, um, I always say that Christianity is a relationship, a very special holy relationship. But rugby is a religion. All right. Yeah, you could be right. It's got a big temple here in Twickenham. That's right. And they're busy playing Scotland tomorrow. Oh, is that right? So I was correct. I, I guess right. Hmm. Let me know when empty, they can hear me. An empty stadium. Of Hello, everybody. I thought we'd just um, call this meeting to order. 
All right, this is the, uh, the requisite moment where all the workers are looking at the screen and waving to people who can't see them. <laughs> it's good to see you all. We're just kind of slowly gathering in the bakehouse, the people who are here in the flesh and the people who are not here in the flesh are gathering on Zoom. So just wait five minutes and then, and then we'll get started. But one's known as a Zoom with a view. A Zoom with a view. We'll get going in a few minutes. What's your connection with Labrie, Martin? Um, I've lived, I've lived uh, in the shadow of Labrie for over 40 years. In a, firstly in Liss and now in Petersfield. Right. Thank you. That's the answer I needed. <clears throat> Martin is very old. I remember sitting in the uh, Labrie uh, drawing once and there was an old man with a white beard in the corner and he was wearing plus fours. Everybody <laughs> listened to every word he said. What kind of um, numbers are you expecting tonight, Joshua? He's gone. You've gone mute. There we are. Say that again, Pat. Sorry? What did you say? Did you ask a question? I, I, I wondered what kind of numbers you had you were expecting, or did you not have a particular number you had in mind do you mean people coming on zoom i mean people coming on zoom last term we had in the 30s and 40s but i was wondering if more people would come tonight because of the 50th anniversary and well, the first lecture and my staggering drawing power as a speaker well yeah there's that of course yes <laughs> Normally, we need Jim to talk about sex to pull these types of. That's right. Yeah, yeah. One of Jim's juicy topics, and then everybody comes. Well, so far, you're eighty-one. I think that we have a hundred-person limit, so hopefully, only ninety-nine people want to arrive. And we're at ninety-two. Okay. <laughs> Joel, make a plan B. Okay. Holmes. Lynn Holmes. Hello, Lind Holmes. Where are you? Oh. This is so strange, but great to see you. <laughs> Paige, we wish you were here. The rest of you, we also wish you were right here. So do we, so do we. I get quite nostalgic looking at that scene behind you. This scene right here. Yeah, I recognize the background. I feel quite amazed. Yes, this is, you can see the fruits of some of our fire labor here. That's a new oh, door. Really? Well, that is, that is interesting, yeah. Not so aesthetic, but very thick, <laughs> which is good for me because I can no longer hear anything that happens in the bakehouse. Okay. No, and more importantly, they can't hear anything that happens in the pump no. house. Very good to see the actual, you know, concrete evidence of your labors, of the fruits of your That's labor. That's right. We've been doing some things. 
Very impressive. We should get going soon. We're at 100. That's amazing, actually. You're all here. Welcome. <laughs> the few, the faithful early remnant. We're going to pause. I'm going to think of a way to let more people in. Oh. Hi, Nigel Halliday. Hello there. Who's that? Alan Smith. Oh, Alan. Hi. I saw your smiling face. There you are. Well, well, well. When was the last time we saw each other? Years ago. <laughs> it was the last century. Hello. I'm not staying. Enjoy <laughs> reading your Christmas news. You're very kind. <laughs> it's a collector's item. Hold on to them. They'll be worth something one day. <laughs> When you're dead. Absolutely. Yeah, the price, price goes up after. Oh. All right, folks, we're going to get started. Joel's going to try to upgrade our account so all the, uh, the latecomers can, can hear this great lecture you guys are about to hear. Well, welcome everybody. Can you see the the slides? Joel, have you done that yet? No. You'll see the slides shortly. So the title of the lecture tonight is The God Who Is Here Against Christian Materialism. Uh, obviously, that title is riffing on The God Who Is There. Uh, you'll, you'll find that a lot of our titles and, and topics in this lecture series, this term, not term, uh, are orbiting around the Schaefer's, this being the 50th anniversary of our branch. So we thought we'd dedicate um, the lectures to reflecting on the, the impact of the Schaefer's ideas, past and, and future. So we're going to be talking about supernatural reality tonight, an idea that was near and dear to the, uh, in the minds and lives of the Schaefer's. And I as I was thinking about, um, as, I was, as I've been working through all this, I've, I've been uh, humbled and I've, it's been an occasion to reflect on how much I still have to learn about the things that I'm going to say tonight. So I'm, I'm not standing in, in front of this camera uh, because I'm an expert, uh, certainly not, but I'm, I'm very much a learner. Um, I have some opinions about some of the problems I think the church is facing, uh, things that Dr. Schaefer identified years ago and have continued or intensified, um, and some ideas about potential solutions. Mostly tonight, they'll be coming from True Spirituality, um, a very thin but wonderful book that uh, Francis wrote. But I just wanted to say by, by way of introduction that um, we're all in, all in the same boat. In, in terms of learning how to walk by faith instead of by sight. So I thought I would kick us off in true Labrie format. Joel, can you give me control? No, you can't, but go to the next slide. In true Labrie format, uh, we're going to start off with a question about 
what supernatural encounters are. So the, the question I want you to think about for a little bit is, when was your last encounter with God? When was your last encounter with God? I've, as I've been thinking through this lecture, it's, I, it's hard to hear that sentence and not make it sound like an advertisement, like I'm advertising Libri. When was your last encounter with God? Um, has it been a while? Did you have an encounter with God in 2020, this uh, dramatic and sorrowful year? Have you had an encounter with God this month? Or today, in the past few minutes? And here's a, here's a meta question about those questions. When I said that, what kind of experiences came to mind? What kind of experiences did you just think of? Uh, in order to answer questions like those, you, you have to come face to face with what you think an encounter with God is, um, which, is which is why I'm asking it. Uh, consider this quote. Think about this quote, Joel, if you want to move on. Uh, this, I found this quote while I was making a fire right there the other day, uh, getting ready for this lecture. And it's from a, it's from a Christian newsletter. So a, a pastor is telling his faith story, and he said, when I was young, I had a supernatural encounter with God. Nobody had shared the gospel, neither had I read the Bible or a gospel tract. Instead, I heard a voice leading me to go to church. So that is the um, quote that I read and, and thought, wow, that is, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Now, the thing I really appreciate about this person is that he, he clearly believes that God is real and that God is able to act in the world. Um, but I didn't choose to quote this because I think it's a, a great example of a supernatural encounter. Actually, quite the opposite. I think it's um, cut from the same cloth as the, the thing that I'm trying to make a critique of tonight. Uh, so let's unpack a few things uh, that are going on in this quote. Um, what, what was supernatural about this encounter? He's saying, when I was young, I had a supernatural encounter with God. What was supernatural? It was associated with something invisible. He heard a, a voice from God that he couldn't see. Um, it was not explainable by any natural means. And he, he points that out. I, no one shared the gospel with me. Neither, neither was I reading the Bible. And as I read that, I wondered, would it, would it be then more, less supernatural if he had been reading the Bible? Uh, would it be less supernatural if he had um, been mowing the lawn? Or if someone he loved had sat him down and said, you need to go to church. And, and that had produced a, a kind of conviction in him. Um, would, that, would those experiences also be supernatural? Or... Or would they not? <clears throat> like, um, like this quote, I think when, I, I wonder if when I asked the question I started with, what, when was your last encounter with God? You thought of things that um, happen outside the bounds of normal everyday experience. Um, and, and that's the thing I want to home in on and, and critique and point us beyond. So to, to ease into the lecture, let me ask a few more questions. How far away is God? Just think about that. Think about what you, what you think the answer, could that, uh, the answer could be. 
How often does he make contact with you? How often do you make contact with him? In what moments of your life does God most clearly make himself known? Have you ever heard God's voice? Has he said anything to you? How do you factor God into your decisions? And which decisions do you factor God into? And finally, the, the last question is a, a meta-level question, reflecting on the associations that just came to mind as I rattle off that list of questions. Is there a difference between your knowledge of the answers to those questions and your practice of the answers to those questions? Is there a difference between your knowledge of the answers to those questions and your practice of them? Um, if you're like me and if you're like most Christians, the, the, the answer to that, to that last question is yes, a big yes. Um, why is that? So the rest of the lecture is my attempt to account for some of the reasons why we might experience the gap between our stated beliefs and our practice when it comes to the supernatural and to suggest a couple reasons out of the, the functional materialism that uh, can so easily grip even those who believe in God. So moving on to the next slide, I have my, uh, my tech minions on the controls here. This is the outline of where we're going, four parts to the lecture tonight. This is, we'll just do a flyby here. I'm gonna start by telling the story of how we got here, what I'm calling the great disenchantment. What happened in the past 500 years that made the consensus what, what it is? Um, second part, what is the problem with Christians? How, how and to what degree have, do we have that disenchantment inside us as well? Uh, what is the theology of the supernatural? If we're going to take um, an aim at aligning our ideas with what the Bible describes when it talks about the supernatural, what, what should we think? And how might we live in the supernatural now? That's a phrase from true spirituality. And, and most, of, most of all my answers at the end are coming from true spirituality. And a lot of the quotes throughout will be coming from that book as well. All right, next slide. Here's my statement of the problem. It comes from true spirituality. Uh, Schaefer says, our generation is overwhelmingly naturalistic. There is an almost complete commitment to the concept of the uniformity of natural causes in a closed system. If we are not careful, even though we say we're biblical Christians and supernaturalists, nevertheless, the naturalism of our generation tends to come in upon us like a fog creeping in through a window, opened only half an inch. As soon as this happens, Christians begin to lose the reality of their Christian lives. I wanna point out a few things about this, this passage. He uses the phrase, the uniformity of natural causes in a closed system. That's, that's a, it's a wordy way to say something that is, that is very important. He's, he's saying that you don't, uh, in this closed system, you don't need to resort to any explanations of divine activity to account for everything that happens, everything that occurs. And actually the sequence of cause and effect is closed. Uh, everything has a natural cause. Everything has a natural effect. Divinities need not apply. This is, this is naturalism. And he also writes, the naturalism of our generation tends to come in upon us. Schaefer observes that to be a Christian in the 20th century, let alone, let alone the 21st, 
is to be surrounded by a different paradigm, a consensus that is uh, characterized by different, believing different things about reality at a fundamental level. And that culture, those different paradigms are also inside us, inside Christians, inside the church. To resist the paradigms of our generation will always be, will always be paddling upstream and will always be slipping back. And he concludes by saying Christians begin to lose reality to the degree that the fog creeps in. Uh, Christians will lose reality. It's not a foregone conclusion that just because you're a Christian and just because you go to church and read your Bible and pray uh, that you're living into God's reality. Rather, it's, it's much more commonplace to make a compromise between humanity's systems of unreality and, and God's true truth. But to the degree that we do that, something gets lost. So that's my introduction of the problem we're trying to, trying to tackle tonight. So how did we get here? What, what has happened in the past 500 years? Next slide, Tech Minion. Uh, here's a quote by John Walton. John Walton says, the dichotomy between the natural and supernatural is a relatively recent one. Deity pervaded the ancient world. In the ancient world, God did everything. There was no category for things that God did and things that came about independent of God. Those are categories that we have developed. That's um, a difficult reality. I, I find that's a difficult reality to um, really imagine myself into. I'm, I'm so saturated by modernistic presuppositions of uh, of a false dichotomy between natural and supernatural that uh, it's, I find it's quite actually hard to imagine what it would have been like to be a pre-modern person thinking about his or her world. Um, but that, that is, that's the way it was in the ancient world. God did everything. There was, there was no purely naturalistic causes. It was not a closed system of cause and effect. Uh, the, there's a couple stories about what, has happened between around the year 1500 and uh, 2021 to um, what change has occurred. One story is you might call the subtraction story. That's the, the subtraction story goes like this. Uh, our secular age came about merely by being what is left over after the subtraction of religious belief, as if materialism and naturalism are a bare fact of reality that science is laid bare. So we, we scrape away all the myth and, and religious belief and we're left with um, naturalism. Uh, in those primitive ages, we believed in gods and superstitions and spells and witches and all that. But now we've, we've, we're done with that and we're on the bedrock of, that science has revealed. There's another story that I think more accurate, accurately accounts for the, the flow of history um, in which it, it's less of a scraping away, less of a discovering of secularism and more of a um, swapping out one set of beliefs for another. Uh, as John Walton said, that's the, these are categories we have developed. It wasn't, we haven't discovered secularism, we've developed it. And that change can be described, that development can be described by five transitions. So here, here are the five transitions. Joel, you wanna put those up? First transition. Uh, a transcendent reality to what Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame. 
the imminent frame is a, a, a kind of strange phrase, but you'll, you'll, we'll all be familiar with what it means. Now, the pre-modern world was an ordered one from the top of the cosmos to the bottom, all in an enchanted framework. And by enchanted, I mean the, the invisible world and the visible world, the things that humans could see and things that humans couldn't see could affect each other. They, they permeated one another. Um, the supernatural realm could influence the natural realm. Uh, if the king sinned, the, um, the gods would be displeased with them and the crops would go bad. That, that wasn't something you had to convince anyone of. It was just the way it is. But today it's common to conceive of our lives as happening entirely within the natural order. So that's the transition into the imminent frame. The, uh, the frame around us is imminent, it's here. There's nothing transcendent above us or beyond what we can see and taste and feel and um, what, what is material. The realm of nature is all that there is and we are part of the realm of nature. So that is the transition into the, the imminent frame. Second transition, uh, the buffered self. And these, these terms are coming from Charles Taylor's book, uh, Secular Age. He, he contrasts in the pre-modern uh, scheme of things, this just as reality was porous to the invisible, so, so, was, so was I. So my, I had a porous self, but in the modern frame of things, I'm buffered. There's a, there's a gap between me and me and existence. Um, so we call the idea that, that someone could cast a spell on me superstitious now, where it was you know, taken for granted in the past, because there's a separation between myself and my neighbor. We can be influenced by naturalistic means, but not by supernatural means. Uh, the supernatural world can't get at me. And this changes a lot about um, the way we conceive of ourselves in the, the modern age. The modern person is fundamentally alone within themselves. There's an un, unshakable and unprecedented freedom in this, that, that, that I'm untouchable, that I'm, I'm impervious from the supernatural world. Uh, even if it did exist, this in, invisible realm did exist, there's no reason, no reason to think that I should owe it anything, that it, uh, we should have any, my life should be planned with any reference to the things that are beyond the material realm. I can live freely without referencing anything that's unseeable. So that is, that is part of the, the current paradigm that we live in. The next transition, I'm calling vertical meaning, from vertical meaning to horizontal meaning. The invisible realm and the visible um, were not on equal footing in the pre-modern understanding. The gods got to make all the rules. Uh, meaning, flowed down from the top. It didn't, it didn't flow up. Um, but today, uh, as Yuval Noah Harari says in Homo Deus, meaning is created when people agree on a network of stories. So that is a very different understanding of how reality is given meaning than a pre-modern person would understand. Um, meaning is created when people agree on a network of stories, stories of Story, religious stories, moral stories, um, racial stories. We agree on this network of stories and meaning rises up out of that agreement into the universe. That's my child crying in the background. <laughs> um, meaning on the, in the universe doesn't descend from on high, it, it rises up. There, there's only grassroots meaning. 
Uh, and there's no super, super narratives, no meta narrative that can judge me, that can come down and say, my meanings are um, insufficient or inadequate. Uh, meaning is still meaningful. It's just no longer authoritative. I can have my meanings. We, my, me and my people can agree on our network of stories and you and your people can agree on a different one. The next transition, autonomous humanism. Uh, autonomous humanism is, is a shift in the explanatory center of reality. Uh, there's, a, there's a heady thrill in this understanding of what it means to be human. The whole understanding of, of the universe is built, has to be built up starting, starting with me, uh, starting with, with my people. We, we humanity, uh, are reality's masters and its, its measures. We are, we are its rulers. Whereas the task of the soul was once to conform itself to the real, it is now to conform the real to the soul. And this transition marks an inversion in the place of humanity in the hierarchy of the cosmos, where once we occupied a sort of, a sort of middling spot in the hierarchy at the top of which were the gods, now we, we sit alone atop the pile of sentient beings. We, we live in the gods' palace and we get to do the things that we used to think they got to do. The fifth transition to scientific rationalism uh, this just means that we have a, have, have a feeling now that science is the only valid measure of reality. So what science can't account for probably doesn't exist, or the burden of proof would be on, on, on that belief. Uh, the cosmos of the gods has become the universe, which is just atoms. Everything is atoms. Rationalism holds that it is through the use of reason that we can come to truths about the universe that we can hold with certainty. Um, truths that are free of any faith commitments. And only that which can be submitted to the measurement of science can be proven and thus ad admitted as true knowledge. And the supernatural world is ruled out by definition because it exists beyond, beyond the realm of the natural. There's a lot more we could say about the transition into the age of disenchantment that we were all born into, but I only wanted to come in passing range and then drive on by um, as we home into the heart of the lecture. So go on to the next slide. The problem with Christians, the problem with Christians. Uh, I've got to say three things here. One about the power of modernity, one about living as a cognitive minority, and one about living as functional materialists. So the, the power of modernity. Andrew Fellows once said in a lecture that modernity is the most complete God substitute yet created. The most complete God substitute yet created. And, and he was right. I have a friend who was walking through an American grocery store with another woman from rural Uganda once. And they, they passed through all the shelves, they got all the things they need, threw them in the cart, checked out. And on the way out, the woman from Uganda looked at my friend and said, why do you pray? So for her, she had just acquired in a few moments so many of the things that um, she was accustomed to praying for, waiting in dependence on God for the Lord to bring. And we're all in that boat now. Modernity has created... Uh, efficient and reliable means of supplying us with so many of the things that for most of human history, people had to pray for. 
we get our our food easily um, health children modernity can give us children um, security and protection unprecedented amounts of prosperity uh, our lives are still full of fear and uncertainty um, but we're we're living in a position that in a sense is is unique we we've had experiences that are um, our predecessors didn't didn't have. If you need something, you have the Amazon app on your smartphone, which is essentially a an everything store. Uh, if you get lost, you can open up Google Maps. If you don't know something, you can Google it. If you're lonely, you can find someone to spend the night with on Tinder. If something happens, you can post about the news. And that's not to say modernity is a bad thing. It's, it's not a bad thing, but it is a very powerful thing. And it has put us in a radically different situation than most of humanity has, ever, has experienced. Um, and that affects the plausibility of our dependence on God. Our, we have a reality that, before us that we are dependent on God. Um, but the, that idea is much less plausible now. It has an effect on the spot in our lives where our ideas about faith meet our practice of faith. It's much easier to live now day to day as though God does not exist, all the while never releasing the conviction that he does. So you can live as though God does not exist, but continue more easily to believe that he does. It's the most complete God substitute yet created. What does it mean to be a cognitive minority? This is a quote from Peter Berger. Berger says, the status of being a cognitive minority is an uncomfortable one. At best, a minority viewpoint is forced to be defensive. At worst, it, ceases, it ceases to be plausible to anyone. In most places in the modern West, the belief in an imminent supernatural, a supernatural realm that is here, that is more than just a, a kind of therapeutic idea, is, puts you in a cognitive minority. You have, you have deviant knowledge, which is not approved by your surroundings. And you have to learn to live in that. You, you learn to code switch depending on who you're around. Um, there are sanctioned ways of being and speaking and unsanctioned ways of being and speaking. And you, we switch fluently through those. If you're at work or at church or with your friends or talking to other parents when you drop your kids off at school, we... We, we wear these double hats, um, and that's, that's what it means to be in a cognitive minority, at least in reference to the, the supernatural. Here's an, a quote from Nathaniel Hawthorne. No man for any considerable period can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be true. So that that is, to be a cognitive minority is to... Uh, live in that bewilderment, uh, to be, become eventually confused about which, which face is true. Um, it's, it's to be in a pressured, a pressured place, and the pressure gets to you. And the more of a deviation your way of life is from the approved norm, the more the pressure increases. So Christians hope to have an impact on the world, but we have to acknowledge that the world has also impacted us. The pressure has got to us. We've internalized its ways, and the lived message that comes out is so often a mixed message. 
uh, and often without even being aware of it. You think you're taking a, a strong and pure stand for the gospel, but actually you're speaking and living a very compromised kind of gospel. Uh, we, we all face that danger. Uh, there, maybe a few terms ago, there was a student who started talking about the pure gospel uh, and living the pure gospel. And I just had to, this was at a lunch discussion. I just had to put the brakes on that and go into this idea that we are, it's difficult to live the pure gospel. It's difficult to even see the pure gospel, to understand it. We're always paddling upstream because the culture is in us as well. Which leads me to the next point, uh, functional materialism. This is really the core of, of what I'm trying to make a critique of and that I think Schaefer really was trying to make a critique of as well. Uh, to be a functional materialist is to live a divided life. <coughs> it's to hold beliefs about the supernatural in this case that no one could deduce from your life, no one could observe from your life if they were only allowed to watch you and not hear what you claim to believe. Does that make sense? There, you, um, if someone could just watch you and say, what does this person believe about supernatural? Um, if you're a functional materialist, they, they will see all your behavior. They, they won't see any gaps, any, any mysterious gaps that reference the supernatural. Um, it, will, it will make a lot of sense on the materialistic level. And Schaefer himself asked the following question in the midst of his own spiritual crisis. He said, if we took everything about the Holy Spirit out of the Bible, what would, how would that change our faith? If we took everything about the Holy Spirit out of the Bible, what would change? What, what difference would it make? And he'd become disillusioned with the functional materialism around him. How eminently practical so much of church practice was. It all made sense. It was just a, a, a unbroken chain of cause and effect in a, a closed system. Uh, in the lives of so many Christians he met uh, in his own life and in the churches that he, he worked with. And, and those questions shook him and he had to go back and re-examine his faith from, from square one. And the question he asked is a fair question and one that we should probably practice asking ourselves. What difference should Christianity make in the moments of our lives. Can you account for every aspect of your life on a wholly materialistic level? Are there any gaps, any supernatural spaces? What would change if it turned out that deism, impersonal deism was true and God exists, but he really just wound the earth up like a watch and then stepped back to just let it tick? Uh, except for exceptional and extraordinary moments of interventions called miracles. What would change? Would anything change if you woke up in that, in that world? Um, should it change? And uh, as you think about that, don't think about um, not so interested in what you would feel about that, that shifted reality, but what would actually, when you wake up, what would change? Um, if you can't think of concrete differences, then you may have veered into functional materialism. You may be availing yourself too much of modernity's powerful tools. And perhaps you need to step back, find ways to step back from that, to challenge yourself. You may have solved the tension of living in a cognitive minority 
um, by letting the dissonant parts of your face, the parts that don't really agree with your surroundings, fall out of the realm of action and remain simply in the, wor in the world of ideas, things that are only half expressed because actually they're only half believed. Um, writing this part of the lecture has been pretty challenging for me. And from here, it only gets more and more challenging. Um, I'm looking forward to the discussion as we figure out actually what, how, how do we do this? Okay, we want to live in the supernatural now, but how do we do it? Uh, but before we get there, let's, let's try to build. I've been using the word supernatural a lot tonight. So let's, let's go back to the Bible for a minute and try to build a theology of, of the supernatural. Here's a quote from True Spirituality. Joel, hit it. According to the biblical view, there are two parts to reality. The natural world, that which we see normally, and the supernatural part. When we use the word supernatural, however, we must be careful. The supernatural is really no more unusual in the universe from the biblical viewpoint than what we normally call the natural. The only reason we call it the supernatural part is that usually we cannot see it. Let's unpack this quote a little bit. He's saying there are two parts to reality. Um, reality is one whole. He's not saying there's two realities that don't touch each other. He's saying there's one whole, like a circle with a line drawn down the middle. That reality has two parts. And the names we often give to them are the supernatural and the natural. But he presses that further. And when he says the only reason we call it the supernatural is that we usually can't see it. So he's, I understand him here to be saying that this, this phrasing can be a bit of a, a trick of our human perspective. There's so little of God's creation that we can actually see. Um, there's, there are many things that just beyond, are beyond us. Uh, so from that perspective, it would appear that some things are what we would call natural and some things are what we would call supernatural. But as I was thinking about this, I wondered, does, would, an, would that distinction make sense to an angel? Would they think of themselves as a supernatural being or a natural being that is happens to be invisible to humans? We can discuss that. Scholars will debate. Um, second thing. First thing. Next slide. Uh, if you're going to explain the Schaefer's view of the supernatural, you have to start with the idea that the supernatural is, is here. The supernatural is here. Uh, it's always here and it's always now. It's not out there. It's as, it's as real as the far side of the moon, which is there even though we can't see it from our, from our position. Um, and it's as near as our fingertips. Think about Paul addressing the Athenians in Acts 17. He's making his case uh, for the biblical God. And he says, in him we live and move and have our being. And that's, that is quite near. We, we live, it's, it almost sounds as if God is to humanity as fish, as water is to a fish. We live in him. We move in him. We have our being in him. That's, it's hard to put the case for God's nearness uh, in stronger terms. Or think of what happens when Jesus takes the disciples up to the Mount of Transfiguration. That's, that is a moment of the invisible realm breaking into the visible realm. Certainly God appears, Moses and Elijah appear. There's a light, um, but it's not in some other world or some separate dimension. It's, it's just occurs at the top of a mountain in the Middle East somewhere. 
Schaefer was fond of saying of this story, had the apostles been wearing watches, they would not, they would never have stopped ticking. So that's a very Schaeferian way of saying this happened in space time. This happened in history. Their watches would have, would have kept ticking. <coughs> the, the language I'm growing more comfortable with is to talk of reality as um, one reality with two realms. So what does the Bible say about that idea? I think of the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One creation, but there's a distinction to them. The heavens and the earth. There's a divine realm, God's space, and there's human space. And, the, and those are locked in a unity, but there's diversity in, in that unity. Or think of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches his disciples to say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't think that's talking about some realm in the clouds, um, but a, a dimension of reality. Um, a, a, yeah, that, that's maybe a good way to say it. Uh, the Bible tells the story of these two realms as being initially unified in creation and then separated because of sin and ultimately reunified in the new creation. And that reunification is exactly what Jesus is praying for when he teaches the disciples to pray, thy will be done, um, thy, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's, he's praying for a, a unification of God's will being done in these two places. And Jesus himself is the, the greatest example of the unification of those two realms. It's not, um, throughout the Bible, you get, you get the invisible realm breaking in on the, the visible realm <coughs> frequently. Uh, you can think of the temple when the temple fills with God's presence. Uh, you can think of um, God appearing to Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. But those aren't the, the most full expression of where this is all headed, of unification of the two realms. The, the most full expression is, is in Jesus. Um, he was the embodiment of that unification. And as the Gospels tell the story of his life, they show this in what happens around Jesus. Um, they, they describe what it means for a person, a human person, to draw near this unification. Uh, sickness is healed. Ideas are, are set right. Even, even death is, is undone. The twisted parts of the fallen reality begin to come untrue as Jesus ushers people in to the reality he represents. And to push that idea even further, that the things that Jesus was, that he did, you, you are supposed to do too. Um, just as Jesus was the intersection of heaven and earth, so is every believer. Um, the kingdom of God is supposed to vector out through you as the world gets put to rights. But don't fall into the, as I was thinking about this, I, I thought, okay, if, if I'm telling them that they are, they are following the trajectory of Jesus, um, there's a dualistic trap that it would be easy to fall into, that they, people might think I'm telling them to go and do these great miraculous things, because that's what Jesus did. Um, it, it, that doesn't necessarily mean you should be manifesting in your life things that others would label miraculous. 
so what should what should you expect? Uh, if I'm saying you shouldn't expect to walk on water or turn it into wine, what should you expect? What is the shape of this calling in the human life? What can be said of the of the direction we should head after this lecture? How do you live in the supernatural now? So that is that's the question we'll we'll turn to uh, to close here. The Schaefer's um, thought about and wrote about and embodied some important answers to that question. Uh, but I, I, before I list a few of them, I just wanted to say these are these are a direction. They're not a formula. They they embodied a few practices, but it's not a, a template to be picked up and and applied rigidly to your life. Here's a quote from True Spirituality. To be a true Bible-believing Christian, we must understand that it is not enough simply to acknowledge that the universe has two halves. The Christian life means living into the two halves of reality, the supernatural and the natural parts. I would suggest that it is perfectly possible for a Christian to be so infiltrated by 20th century thinking that he lives most of his life as though the supernatural were not there. Indeed, I would suggest that all of us do this to some extent. Being a biblical Christian means living in the supernatural now, not only theoretically, but in practice. So here, Schaefer is pushing the previous quote even further. He's saying it's not enough to get your theology right. You have to live into the two halves of reality. And that raises the core question, how? How do we do it? <coughs> There's an image that has been coming to my mind as I've thought through this over the past couple of weeks. And the, the image is of an invisible wall. So imagine there's a, you're outside and there's an invisible wall there in front of you. And you have a ladder in your hand that is visible, just a normal ladder. So the, the Christian life, Schaefer is saying, is not only acknowledging the presence of the invisible wall, but it's leaning the ladder against the wall is the first step, and then climbing the ladder. And people who see you, should see a person, a person standing at the top of a ladder leaning on nothing. And they should wonder why and how. And we, we do this imperfectly at Labrie, but that is, that's the idea. Those are some of the practices that the Schaefer's built into this community. They wanted us to, for people to come here and wonder why and how and um, see the demonstration of an invisible God played out in, in a visible place. So here are a few um, principles and rules of thumb coming out of the Schaefer's work and, and lives. First point is raising the empty hands of faith. That's a phrase that appeared often in the Schaefer's writing. And it comes, I think it comes from St. Augustine who said, God is always trying to give us good things, but our hands are too full to receive them. And I wonder if Schaefer would even push that further and say, God has already given us good things and our, our hands are too full to receive them. So part of living in the supernatural now is learning and practicing the emptying of your spiritual hands and then raising them to God. In, in my own prayers recently, I've been even envisioning this. Uh, things in my hands, worries, plans, <coughs> hopes, fears, regrets, shame, and guilt. I imagine them as, as actual objects that I can um, put down, set aside, and then 
lift my newly emptied hands to God. And it's just a, it's just a uh, visualization, but it's a, it's a powerful reminder of what I think we need to do. To remember that we need to look to God, not only in the intangible aspects, but in the, in the practical things, the times I'm worried about being late, the times my car won't start, or I realize I need to apologize to a friend, to set my worries aside, set my fears aside, not ignore the circumstances of life, but empty my hands so that I can raise those circumstances to God. And when we think of supernatural living, um, I, I imagine if we, I imagine that we, we think of living with power. And if you're living in the supernatural now, um, we think about miracles. We think about um, doing things that are unexplainable by any other means. But the, the kind of supernatural empowerment I'm talking about here is, is a very lowly kind of empowerment, insisting that the path to um, supernatural power is, has to follow first a way of, of emptiness and openness to receive what the Lord would give. And after you open yourself to un undergoing a certain process with him, his, his unresting and unhasting and unrelenting work begins to play out in your life. So let's move on to the next one. Active passivity. Uh, this is another phrase that appeared a lot in the Schaefer's writing. And it's an odd mashup of two words, active and passive, that is deliberately, I think, designed to be sound unusual to contrast with active activity on the one hand or passive passivity on the other by charting a middle way that focuses and balances somehow both human action with reliance on God and his sovereignty. And active passivity plays out in, in three steps. Pray, wait, and act. Pray, wait, and act. And this, is, this isn't a formula because God is a person and we are persons, but there is a sequence to it. Certain things that come before other certain things. Pray, wait, and act. So Dawn, uh, one of the workers here, told a story when I was a student of her time with Edith Schaefer during a lecture. And uh, Don and Edith were late going, going somewhere <coughs> and the car wouldn't start. So immediately Don pulls out her phone to call a taxi and Edith puts her hands and prevents her, puts her hands on, on Don's hand and says, first we should pray. And so instead of calling a taxi, they prayed and then they waited. And when I heard that as a student, I thought, my first thought was, well, that's, that seems quite spiritual. And my second thought was, that's sort of odd. They, Edith needs to go give a lecture, probably share the gospel with thousands of people. And they shouldn't Don do the things that are, that are easily available to make sure that happens. Uh, but if you think about it, there, there's a wonderful humility to it. When Edith put her hand on Don's hand and stopped her from calling the taxi automatically, uh, she was saying, in effect, I am God's creature. And I don't know what his plan is for me today. She was saying, I, I, I will leave a gap in the naturalistic chain of cause and effect. Uh, leave a gap for the supernatural. Because I don't know what his plan is for me today. 
And because that's what it means to be a human trying to live into the reality of a God like the Christian God. After the lecture in the Q&A, I asked what happened next? And Don said, oh, I called a taxi. And that is an important part of the story to tell too. Um, there's, a, there's three steps to the sequence, pray, wait, and act. And the moving from waiting to acting may never happen. Uh, God may have orchestrated events in such a way that just the right car came at just the right moment and combined their need with the needs of the, per the people in the car and the result was something beautiful, more beautiful than just calling a taxi and getting there on time would have ever been, according to God's own ends. Um, the waiting allows time for your own attitude to change, which also might be one of God's purposes. Um, or you may simply need to be denied something. And the waiting allows time for that as well. And that's what it means to be human, a creature who's not independent, who doesn't exist on, on its own, but is who is dependent on God at, at all points in all ways. The waiting, step two, is a very human thing. And sometimes the sequence ends in the waiting. It, sometimes it's only a two-step sequence, pray and wait. And the next step is no. Uh, but waiting is not the final step in the process. There's a third step. Uh, it's not as though waiting and being denied your own desires is somehow, is always the most beneficial or spiritual outcome. After waiting comes acting. It wasn't unspiritual of Don and Edith to call a taxi after they prayed and they waited and then they acted because God made humans agents. We are, we are actors. He gave us the ability to cause things to happen. He picks up where we live off and we live off, we pick up where he leaves off in this dance that is the unfurling of creation that he's planned. Um, he created a good but unfinished creation, and he set down creatures in it that would do the finishing with him. And that, that was the plan, to guide uh, God's creation with him into flourishing. So to embrace a kind of spirituality that relinquishes your power to act is de also dehumanizing and dishonoring to God, who may have brought you to this very place to act, in this very moment in order to act. And sometimes the time to wait ends and the time to act begins and that you might cross that line before you reach a sense of um, confidence or certainty or, or answers. You, you don't always have the luxury of a no. Well, nothing happened, so we're going to step back from action because sometimes you just have, you have to do something. Life presents us with many of those circumstances. And this implies by definition we're going to make a lot of mistakes. <clears throat> uh, knowing the difference between the steps of the sequence and when, when and how to move between them is a matter of maturity. And that maturity can only be imparted by God, uh, gained through repeated encounters with his faithfulness as you act out the steps of the sequence over and over again throughout the circumstances of your life. And I, I'd say that is one of the points and, and one of the reasons why this Living this way is so important so that God can teach you what it means to depend on him. Uh, even at Labrie, we, we make some degree of an effort to, to live guided by the principle of passive, active passivity. Um, 
but we don't always know what it looks like. Uh, we have to pray, wait, and act in order to learn how to pray, wait, and act. Um, but but that is, that's the human condition. So the, the last thing I want to mention before we do some questions and answers is this idea of moment-by-moment moment faith, also another important phrase to the Schaeffers. Uh, Francis wrote, we must believe God's promises at this one moment in which we are. Consequently, in believing God's promises, we apply them. The present meaning of the work of Christ for the Christian for and in this one moment. If you can only see that, everything changes. It's, it's God's job to show us his reality and to make us into the kind of creatures that can uh, live in the supernatural now, that can meet with him and act with him in a, to greater and greater degrees. And he could have made it so that that was not the case, so that we did not need to grow up, um, but he didn't. And he could have made it so we exist outside of time instead of experiencing things as a sequence from past to future. But he didn't. This is, this is the way he wanted it to be. So at every moment in every place, we are standing at the intersection of the supernatural and natural realms. And in that moment, we have to believe again, moment by moment. Schaefer said, the faith of the morning will not do for noon. The faith of dinner time will not do for midnight. There must be a moment by moment turning to God. So uh, remember where we started with the, with the quote. I, I heard a voice telling me to go to church. So rather than being limited to an invisible voice, um, as in that quote, or any other means we might traditionally think of as, as quote unquote supernatural, God encounters us in the particulars of things. If you shelter under a tree in the rainstorm, you're having a supernatural encounter with God. You're interacting with a piece of God's creation that is actively being sustained and cared for by him and whose meanings extend well into the visible realm and invisible realm that you can't see and back again. Um, let, and that's just a tree, let alone say if you're buying groceries and you're actually standing before uh, a being that bears the image of God. So I'll, I'll end with the question I started with. When was your last supernatural encounter? Uh, hopefully I have at least complicated the answers to that and given provided a few things to think about. So now let's talk together. Thank you for your attention. It's, it's, I miss all of you people on Zoom not being in this room. The workers are very attentive, but very quiet. But let's, let's have some conversation now. Should we have a couple of minutes just to collect the questions here from? Sure, yeah. Okay, yeah, my, my tech minions are hard at work on the computers. Uh, so if you want to, if you have a question, you want to send it in on the chat, Josue is going to collect them and we'll see how many we can get to. If you want to, we have a couple of questions here. We can get started and then. Let's just, let's get started then. Okay. So, um, Emily is asking just a clarification. Would it, it only be Christians who factor out this dual reality or is it all, all created persons, even if they do not acknowledge the role? That's a good question. That's Emily Boyer. We should make former workers answer their own questions, I think. <laughs> okay, yes, I'll repeat the question. So Emily says, is it only Christians who vector out um, 
Maybe we can just have Emily ask it. Can, can we bring her on? That way I can make her answer it also. Emily, it sounds like you're saying that not only Christians vector out God's reality, but unbelievers do as well. And to that, I would give, give a hearty yes asterisk. We can't hear you yet, Emily. Unmute yourself. Have I got your question right? Yes, I'm, I think, and it was just a, more of a clarification rather than something I have a real conclusion about. But I guess that's, you know, if we are, are believing that everyone is created in God's image, and if Christ is the, the meeting point or the integration point of these two realities, then I think, unless I'm creating some logical fallacy here, that we have to imply that then we also vector out just as created persons made in God's image. Um, we harbor both of these realities in ourselves, but yeah, I guess it's just as Christians can keep the supernatural locked up in a way, maybe I guess other people can too, or even non-Christians perhaps vector it out better than we do, I guess is my other question is, is that possible? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. So one of the things that I was saying is that Christians can, um, claim to follow, um, claim to exist in and believe in the supernatural, but have that not be expressed in their life. I think people who do not make that claim, uh, who think that the supernatural does not exist, can also experience a longing or, or an ex a direct experience of the transcendent as well. So I, I think that's just picking up one thing that you said. Um, right. I think it can work both ways. Okay. I, I think so you're, you're asking, do, do non-Christians also vector out God's reality? I, I think the answer is yes and no. Yes, asterisk. I think, what do I want to say? Other people in the room, feel free to jump in if you want to. Just clarify the terms someone is asking, vectoring out. Vector, uh-huh. Yep, the pandemic has taught us a lot about vectoring. If I get sick and I sneeze in this room, I vectored that sickness to all the people on whom my droplets land, and then they further vector it. I think Romans, it says, although they know God, they deliber deliberately suppress the truth. So uh, Romans says everybody has the knowledge of God, but they're actually either give him thanks and glory or they stomp him under their feet. Mm. I think we should. Yes, that is, that is certainly true. I, I would also want to add that those who do know God, those who are being renewed in his image deliberately suppress the truth all the time as well, because it's, it's a progressive thing. Yeah. Um, hopefully I, I should be growing in um, the degree to which I'm able to reflect God's reality into the world. Uh, and that's maybe the distinction I'm making, Emily, that a, a, perhaps a Christian is someone who's growing in that direction. And that's not to say that those who are not growing in that direction, God will not be glorified through them, or that the, the image of God that they bear indelibly will not be manifest as well, um, either in the the way that they 
love their family, even though they, they don't believe in God or the way that they, you know, let's say a non-Christian surgeon does pushes back the fall in the operating room. Um, that, that is in a sense doing the same work, but I would want to have a, I would want to insert a difference there in terms of the trajectory. Does that make sense, Emily? I'm, I need some more time to really think about my answer to that. But. Yeah, no, thank you, Andy. That's helpful. Can I ask a question, Joseph? Go to it. Go ahead. Yes. Can I ask a question, please? He yes. says yes. Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay, right. Who says yes? I thought it was you who had to say yes. You've anyway, got some yeses. Go for it. But yeah, jo Josue is the Q&A master. Oh, okay. I thought go ahead, you, Pat. I thought you were Josue. Sorry. I thought you were Josue. I'm not. I'm just Andy. <laughs> oh, sorry. I got confused. I'm sorry. It's Forgive fine. Me. Yeah, people most of the time think I'm Joel. <laughs> and I get confused about that as well sometimes. I'm glad we got it clear. Thank you. Okay, I just wanted to go back to the um, illustration with the taxi, right? And, and the uh, issue about pray, wait, and act, yeah? Which yeah. is a central, a central uh, plank of the Schaefer's way of doing things. And, and the fact that Edith, you know, apparently put her hand on, I don't know which dawn it was, hand on her. On doll then, Don Murray's now. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, stopped her calling a taxi. Um, but it, eventually it appears, and you sort of said, in order to leave a gap for the supernatural in the chain of natural cause and effect. Um, now, my, my expectation as a kind of, you know, kind of being around a bit a long time, was thinking, ah, you know, something supernatural would happen. But then it appeared that Dawn called a taxi. Is that right? Now, I don't yep. understand how that implement, how that imp implements you know what you're trying to I, i'm a bit confused what you're putting across yeah it's not as uh triumphant a story as many of the edith schaefer stories are which are many of which there are many which definitely are yeah yes many that end with this because we prayed and waited um that's why i was confused something happened yeah well that's why i chose the story yeah but i, I i'm sorry maybe i just didn't pick up on, on what you were trying to do could you kind of explain to me? Please? Sure. Yeah, no problem. I, the thing I like about that story is when we pray and we wait, it's not always guaranteed that some supernatural taxi will come, that some, some taxi unexplainable by any <laughs> you know, yeah. human means will come. Yeah. So what determined, what, at what point and, and for what reasons would they decide that it was in order you know, to, to, to operate a more, you know, apparently more naturalistic factor. Say that one more time, Pat. I didn't understand that. Point did it, did, would both of them have decided that, in fact, it was more appropriate, you know, not to wait any longer and to go through the usual natural process? If only Don were here. Um, I don't know. I can't help asking because you were making such a big point about the supernatural. Yeah, the I, I think it's an important story. I, th I think it's also important for this crowd that it's a story about Edith Schaefer. Um, she prayed and there wasn't this that's, wonderful that's person right. who needed her to share the gospel with them who came up with a car. They just called a taxi. <laughs> I, I imagine. Yeah. I imagine they just decided to call a taxi. 
Indeed. They prayed and they waited. But she had nevertheless intervened and put her hand on Dawn's hand to, you know, to the extent of doing quite a, quite a definite you know, act. And, and to the yes. really implement, really exerted her faith, haven't she? And yet, That's, that yet, seems to be the way she operated, that in the moments of her life, she believed that that's that's what it meant to be a human trying to live in dependence on God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just that I, the reason I ask, I nearly called you Joshua again. I've got to stop it. I, and, I take that as a badge of honor. <laughs> it doesn't encourage me in, in good habits. Anyway, Andy, the reason I ask is that you know, like many of us, you know, we all have sensitive points, don't we, in our lives where you know we're very sensitive about particular things we're asking God for let's just put it like that you know mm. and and it's difficult for us to live with the kind of either or you know uh, you know are we going to have to adapt to the fact that it's not going to happen or do you know what I mean it's a very sensitive area that's why I raise it you know yes yeah no that's why I chose that story I think when you read the Labrie story um or the tapestry so many um unexplainable things happen Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, and it's very inspiring. On the flip side of that is it can be very discouraging. Yeah. You can think, well, what are my prayers affecting? Am yeah. I doing this all the wrong way? Am I have I not waited long enough? Yeah. Um, yeah. Am I not holy enough? How does God feel about me? All this all these things are happening to the Schaefers. Yeah. Uh, but they were just humans trying to live in the supernatural now in dependence on, on the Lord just like us. Catherine, did you have something to add to that? Um, <laughs> maybe move on. I was just going to say, I think part of it may not be it may not be relevant to what the it may not be relevant to what the conversation is. I was just going to say, I think doing that as a mark of humility. Um, doing that as a mark of humility. Yeah, <laughs> it's mark to me like a mark of humility. Um, I guess I was trying to go back to what. I guess the question was, why did you make such a big deal about that story? And what was the point of bringing that in? And, and I guess that was just one thing I was thinking of. Was I can't hear very well. I'll repeat it. You can just hide behind the camera. <laughs> Great. <laughs> uh, I was just trying to say that it sounds like you, part of the reason for bringing that story up is because her stopping Dawn's hand in that moment is a mark of her humility. And what I mean by that is she's sort of um, acknowledging her side in relation to the Lord um, that she doesn't necessarily know, like you said, exactly mm. the way he wants things to play out. And as aware of her um, weakness and I suppose choosing what you're talking about, choosing to kind of acknowledge the supernatural um, in some ways uh, rather than only looking to the material. Um, and I suppose like the other side of it, that's a vulnerable moment, isn't it? Because like you're saying, yeah, some, something sort of flashy doesn't always happen, but I suppose that is also feeding into what you're saying. Every time you do that, the Lord is growing you. And I think um, what happens in the moments when nothing seems to happen is probably almost more important <laughs> um, because what happens in the moment that nothing flashy seems yeah, to happen is the most important thing. Yeah, or I wonder. I, yeah. I wonder if sometimes that is 
even more valuable what happens and um, when it seems like nothing happens mm. because in that moment you have to really think well what do I really think about the Lord what does this moment mean does it mean he's abandoned me or he's not there or you know it, it, it really tests your it refines your trust um actually yeah. mm. and I think yeah, I think that's well said. All kinds of other things and that are, are, are painful but really valuable benefits from that moment, even when the taxi doesn't appear and you have to call it yourself. Or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that was yeah. some. No, that's well said. Did everyone hear that? Could, would you mind kind of summarizing? I mean, I know it's difficult because it's not easy. Summarizing. Uh, no, I'll do it. I'll summarize. I'll try. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, sure you're, yeah. I'm sure you're more than capable, Andy. Catherine was just saying that um, the interesting thing about that story, she was saying, I wonder if the things that when something flashy doesn't happen, I wonder if those are actually just as important for our spiritual formation as the times when something flashy does happen. Mm-hmm. Although if we, if we have a great need and we pray and God satisfies the great need, that, that there is a nourishment in that. And there is yeah. a, um, there's a shaping and a, and a learning. But the same is true when nothing flashing happens, that you, you have to think about what you believe. We've got 100 people on Zoom, and I'm sure we've got at least 1,000 questions. So let's keep Thank going. You. Thank Joseph. you. Yeah. So the next one, uh, Andy, that's from Simon. He's asking, does the word supernatural have too much baggage to be useful anymore? Hmm. If we change the vocabulary, will we change or even solve the problem? Simon, uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Does, does the word supernatural have too much baggage? Uh, I really debated about what language to use. Schaefer used it in all the true spirituality quotes, so I was kind of locked into supernatural and natural. But I, I really can't think of a better way to phrase it. I, I don't think there's any baggage-free words unless you just in, invent your own um, some people the, the problem with the phrase supernatural and natural is that it it does suggest a kind of like here's the natural this this is the reality we all see and agree on and there's something else out there with super beyond us uh, but that's not really the picture the bible paints the bible paints a picture of the invisible realm as as very near um, visible and invisible I find myself using those, that language a lot. Um, the invisible realm is not always invisible. Uh, it's, it's often visible. And it, it, using that kind of language also would indicate that there's nothing uh, quote unquote supernatural in, or invisible about the visible things. And when you shelter under a tree in the rainstorm. <coughs> um, what are other ways to say it? Jim, you just wrote a book about this. Come on. <laughs> which you can buy on Amazon soon. <laughs> Come on up to the mic. Yeah, I, I think, the, I mean, the words natural and supernatural, they're in a sense quite recent inventions, aren't they? Probably sort of really 17th century onwards and to describe the world in that kind of way. And as, as you began to see this world that is, you know, just nature, it's not creation. It's just nature. And then um, the supernatural, uh, <laughs> the supernatural becomes this world that's not nature. And then as nature grows in a scientific way, then 
super nature becomes smaller and smaller. So yeah, I try not to use those words. I, I, I think of invisible and invisible, or maybe you could say something like God's normal activity within our world and his unusual activity in, in our world or something like that, you know, because he is active in both the normal mm. and the unusual. I don't know, some, some word like that might work. I'm going to hand back to Andy. Okay. You want to go back? Well, I cheekily turned that camera around on Jim. I got to look at maybe 25 of your faces, and it's so good to see all you people. Um, I Let's get through this time together and get out on the other side, and then everyone book in. And we'll just line up trailers out on the lawn, and we can all just sleep out there together. Okay, more questions. Maybe connected to that, I don't know if you want to explore it uh, further. Robert is asking, what are the distinctions between the different ways God acts? For example, natural events such as rain or God acting through his people by the Holy Spirit, God performing a miracle. Do we make too much of the distinction between these two different ways of God acting? The question from Robert. Robert, wherever you are, good question. Uh, what what are the distinction between what are the distinctions we can make between the ways God acts? If God sends the rain, as the Bible says that He does, is that different than God doing a, a quote unquote miracle, walking on water, turning water into wine? Um, well, I, I think I, I I did say this in in the lecture, but I think our language is often uh, a trick of our perspective. Um, I, I would want to step, don't, no, one, no one tweet this quote, but I'd kind of want to step away from the language of, of miracle and, and have, have a more unified understanding of, of God's action in the world. Um, it is God acts to send the rain. God acts to sustain uh, the solidarity of every molecule that exists. Is that different than the kind of acting that he does when he raises someone from the dead? Um, Okay, yes, there are differences. There seems to be a, a sequence of events that he's pleased to sustain that people are born, they live, and they die. And at times, he interrupts or reverses that sequence. But it's, it's all God doing things. Um, yeah, I, I do wonder if that word miracle does make sense predominantly within the frame of, of a more distant God, uh, a God who seldom acts instead of always acts. Robert, do you want to say anything else about that? You can unmute yourself or chat to my minions. No, that was helpful. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a very interesting lecture so far. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose it's, uh, it is, it's difficult to get away from the dualistic way of thinking, isn't it? That, uh, yeah, that everything is normally works like a clock and then God occasionally intervenes. We've got to get away from that and realize that God is continually working in his creation. It is so difficult to get away from that. Uh, on the one hand, the, this idea of the uh, getting over the sacred secular split, the, the idea that there's secular things and sacred things and those are different things is something that we harp on with the students a lot around here. And, Having said it so many times at lunch tables, it feels like a cliche to me, um, but every time it always comes up. Like it's, it's so difficult to get away from. And I, even though I myself have said it to so many people, 
Uh, I see it in myself all over the place. I think there's a sense in which I am a converted person. I've been a Christian as long as I can remember, uh, but there's still ways in which that conversion is working itself out as I learn to live into God's reality. And the conversion of the imagination is, is one of the big ways that it's, it's still much easier to borrow notes from the culture I'm immersed in when it comes to thinking about the sacred and the secular instead of really align myself and stay aligned with the more biblical understanding of it. A comment here, Andy. Uh, Mostyn Roberts says, helpful distinction maybe, extraordinary and ordinary in the supernatural work of God, and also a need to distinguish good and evil in the supernatural realm, not always good. Oh. Yes, so, okay, I forget who said that, but you said two things. Uh, you're putting forward the uh, distinction that perhaps ordinary, having two categories of the ordinary and extraordinary work of God when, it, when, um, when he's pleased to do things one way most of the time, and that sometimes is pleased to interrupt that sequence of events and do something else. That would be ordinary and extraordinary. And the second part of the question, would you say it again? Sure, sure. yeah. Uh, I, I need to distinguish good and evil in the supernatural realm, not always good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that uh, I've been dealing with the supernatural realm as just kind of one thing, uh, the supernatural. But um, this question is getting into, actually, we could, we could sort out some things in the supernatural. There's, there's good supernatural. There are forces, there's God and there's forces aligned with God. And there are, there's an evil supernatural. Uh, forces aligned against God. Did you want to um, take that question any further? Was there anything, any comment you wanted to make? You can unmute yourself if you want. Um, no, that was fine. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, definitely we'll need to, uh, yeah, I think it's just something we need to practice when we learn about, you know, I quite like learning about science. So when I learn about something that's scientific, I shouldn't think, oh, isn't it amazing that that's what the universe does? I should think, isn't it amazing that that's how God is running his creation? Mm -hmm. um, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's a good thought. Anyone else in the room? There are other people in the room, but do you guys have any questions? I'm sure there's lots more in the chat as well. Let's hear it, Josue. Marsh asks, are the weather forecasters prophets or scientists? <laughs> Marsh, you definitely have to answer your own questions. <laughs> I'm not going to play that game. Uh, Marsh, Marsh asks, Is, are the weather forecasters prophets or scientists? They're scientists. Marsh, do you, do you want to pick up this debate yourself? <laughs> Thank you for that important contribution, Marsh. I'd like um, to say that um, it's organized or unorganized rain. Organized. <laughs> say that again. This is a joke, but he talked about the weather. <laughs> Organized or unorganized rain. That's what sometimes weather forecasters will say. <laughs> gotcha. Well, yeah, weather forecaster is looking at the pattern and trying to figure out what it's going to do next. 
Yeah, I'd like to ask a question. I'll ask it. Voice from the, from the internet. Sylvester. <laughs> All right, we'll swap seats a moment. Ask away. All right. Oh, that's really tilted a little bit. <laughs> okay, trying to take a more humble position here. Now, the question is in reference to our humanity. Uh, come, from, uh, come to the question as an artist. And my question, you know, even though it, it began in my youth, first was, does God like black folk? Does he like me? You know, does he hate me? Whatever. That was the question, but it transitioned into a, a, a more, well, a more universal question of who are we? Where do we come from? And so the question I asked tonight is, you know, as we're, we're thinking about our very being, our very essence, you know, because when Jesus walked with the disciples, we had already seen that extraordinary miracle where he appears through Mary and he's there, he's walking with them and he's making certain assumptions about our very existence. So it's not a problem to feed the 5,000. It's not a problem to walk on the water. He's expecting to be able to do that. And as you were talking earlier, you're saying we're living in this dual reality, you know, this or these, these dual realms, um, you know, the one that we know and can see, but the unseen. And that Jesus, being the personality, the being the God that he is, was there. And here we are made in his image. And it's it's strikes me that something else is going on with us that we are taking for granted that because we do bear the image of the creator and we reflect him somehow. And I'm asking, isn't this part of it? And that we are making assumptions that our very existence isn't part of it. It's just in the realm of the seen, but I think it exists also in the unseen simultaneously. We can take the question from there. Do you follow? Hopefully you follow what I'm trying to say. I think so. Are, are you saying that we, um, there is an unseenness to ourselves? Yes, very much so. Hmm. Um, you know, even in our relationships with each other, and that even in our attitude toward each other, um, he says, "What you know, he says, what you do to the least of these, you do to me." And and as we started to add the evidence, one verse on another, one comment on another, it, mm -hmm. the evidence for that seems to pile up. It seems to be accumulating that we are more than we think we are. And we have learned to see ourselves as just the clay yes. that exists. Uh, when in truth, we know that we, we go from here to the unseen, we do not just cease to exist. Um, okay, if you can- I think that's a good insight. I, I think we, we trade in the unseen realm at every moment. Yes. The, it's unseen, so it's it's hard to say 
I'm doing this and I'm doing that. But I think our, our actions, our thoughts, um, the way we live our lives have consequences that ripple out into the seen world and consequences that ripple out into the unseen world of, of which we're largely ignorant and consequences that go into the unseen world and then come back into the seen world. <clears throat> I'm thinking of, as you were talking, I was thinking um, in the New Testament, you get um, a, a couple pictures of this, sex, prayer, and communion. So Paul is warning, uh, don't you know, if you, if you have sex with a prostitute, you join yourself to her. So there is some, I think this is in one of the Corinthians, there's some, there's a physical act that is also has spiritual significance. Um, he's, I think, also warning the Corinthians about how they're taking communion. He's saying you're, they, they have all these rowdy practices and they're kind of inverting what the, uh, or they're, they're reading the Corinthian power dynamics into the communion meal. And he says, just in a little aside, that some of you are sick because you've done this and some have died. So there's this, there's this sense that here is this um, seeing thing. It's just a meal. It's just communion. But it's charged with uh, unseen significance and both unseen and seen consequences. And then also you can think of prayer. Um, we, when we pray, it's, it is a seen activity. You can see someone doing it. And that thought, the request, the language goes into the unseen. We, we don't shoot out rays. It goes into the unseen but has true consequences. It's heard by God, who is a person who determines how he will act on it. Um, prayer can affect things in the seen world. Right, can, can I mention just two things here? Because um, I'm struggling, I don't have the vocabulary for it. I'm hoping maybe you can express it here. Um, there are two things come to mind. One is, um, I'll go first to the prophet who was beating his donkey, his ass, and the, the ass says to him, can't you see that angel standing there? All right? This, is, this was happening, you know, in his existence, or you see David, you know, he, he sends his general down because he doesn't want to go down. He sees the angel of death there, and he's frightened. I mean, he's frightened out of his wits. He doesn't want to go himself because he sees the angel there. Now, we know that we are here like this. So as a photographer, for example, let's say I'm striving to um, accept the person that I'm photographing. So much so that, let's say, I'm making a portrait of you now in this moment, and I hang a gallery full of portraits of other folk, that if I've done the perfect job, it reflects the Shekinah so strongly that we can't walk in there, all right? Hang on a moment. <laughs> but we are greater, are a greater reflection of God than my photographs would ever be. And yet we stand in the presence of each other. You know, even now we are in the presence of each other, hearing, talking, speaking, living, moving, being. And I'm struggling for a vocabulary. I'm saying, help me. It says, but it seems to me that we are existing presently in that seen and unseen right now, in this mm -hmm. moment. But we have learned to take it for granted and have taken the humanistic view as you were laying out for us. And so we, we are blinded in one sense because 
of that attitude that we have taken on rather than rejecting it and moving toward the place you're trying to push us. Mm. Help. I, the, not, you don't need any help, Sylvester. I think that's well, well said. I have no, nothing to add. Yes, let's move on. So Paige is asking, I think there's something, some, some relation to this question, but we'd love to hear thoughts on, on why the invisible is unseen. Is it because it's too much for us as fallen creatures? That's a good question, Paige. Paige is asking, why is the invisible unseen? Is it because it's too much for us as fallen creatures? Yes. Yeah, I think there's there's two parts to that answer. One has to do with the fall. One has to do with our finitude. I, I think we much is lost to us because we are fallen. And, and I think in the new creation, we will have access to a greater realm, a greater spectrum of reality, I, I would say. Uh, probably, and again, we, we walk by faith, not by sight, so I'm just guessing here. Uh, but probably we our, our finitude would limit a lot of that as well. I, I wonder if it would. Uh, humans perhaps aren't supposed to have access visually or sensually to everything God made. Uh, I, I don't think we can attribute all of that to only, only sin. I don't think we were necessarily, um, well, who knows? I think humans are a given thing. And God was pleased to make us finite. We see only in the a certain color spectrum from from blue to red. Um, I think, yeah, ultraviolet to to infrared. That that's a very slim spectrum of light that our that our eyes can take in. And God God wanted wanted it to be that way. So I I yeah, I'm just repeating myself. I think it's finitude and fallenness, and I don't know exactly where the what to what we can attribute to each part of that answer. But I don't think we should assume that if we just weren't sinful, we'd be able to, to, to see and comprehend all of creation. I think impartially, it just has to do with our size. Paige, do you want to follow that up with anything? Paige, your mouth is moving, but we just can't hear you. Wouldn't it be nice if you could actually be here right now, like you were supposed to be? Can you unmute yourself? <laughs> oh, Paige, dance it to us. <laughs> don't, yeah, don't try to. I'm just gonna assume you thought my answer was great. <laughs> you have nothing further to add. Or you can type it to Joe's way. Okay, we're coming. We're coming at nine thirty. Um, we can we can linger a bit longer if there's burning questions, but it's Zoom, so you can leave whenever you want. Uh, no longer do you have to fear the glare from the person at the front. Mm -hmm. Hey, you posed the question earlier about the angel. Carl has a question. Yeah, you're gonna have to approach <laughs> approach the podium. <laughs> turn, turn uh, unmute yourself. <laughs> All the way, all the way. <laughs> there we all are. Those people. So you posed the question before, Amy, that's uh, an angel 
Uh, like supernatural, natural. Does an angel think of itself as supernatural? Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's not a question, Carl. <laughs> That's a comment. You just quoted. <laughs> what do you want me to say about that? What do you think? And what do I think? <laughs> Does an angel think of itself as supernatural? I don't think they do. No, I don't think they do. I think uh, this is what I said during that point in the lecture. I think that's a, it's a trick of our perspective. We assign that label to the invisible realm because it's invisible. And an angel is a kind of being who possesses capabilities that are outside of our categories. You know, we can't do it. Nothing like an angel uh, exists in the visible realm. But probably to an angel, it, they're just being angelic. And that, you know, no big deal. This is just what I am. This is what all my friends are. Um, this is the way it is. This is natural. It's, it's also important, isn't it, that um, invisible is not Jim the same speaking non-material. Invisible is not non-material. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because yeah. An angel can manifest itself in the material world with material consequences. Angels can eat things. Yeah. Or dissipate Jacob's hip. Wrestle, <laughs> wrestle with Jacob. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Invisible is not non-material. So you know, how can we make that category mistake? Mm -hmm. We say the invisible is the non-material. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's well said, Jim. More questions. And there is something to do with your framework of the humanistic framework you've given. It's kind of a question here. Do, do you think our increased dependence on technology and computers encourages to think in terms of closed systems? Does our increased dependency on technology and computers encourage, encourage us to think of things as closed yes, systems? Yes. Yeah. Part of your yeah, sure. I do think that. Yeah, that. Well, that idea makes sense. Mm -hmm. That we, um, yeah, there's that whole idea of the God of the gaps that mm -hmm. people once attributed to God, uh, the things that they just didn't understand. Mm -hmm. And so that that was plausible because we don't know why the sun rises. So it must be uh, the gods who do it, or the sun must be a god. But as science grows stronger, the gaps are filled in. It, it would make sense then <clears throat> that the plausibility would work the other way too, that um, you can now almost, maybe the gaps, it's so easy. There's so, so many gaps that have been filled in. You can now almost survey the horizon and imagine that there aren't any. Mm -hmm. and, and as science becomes more powerful, perhaps that plausibility would only increase. Um, that's one of the things that Charles Taylor is saying in a secular age, that they, they're, science has at least given the effect of a, a seamless whole, mm -hmm. that there's nothing. We, we filled in all the gaps. We've accounted for all of knowledge. And if there's areas of knowledge that we haven't accounted for, we will. We will soon because we're growing. We're learning. Um, but Taylor also points out, he kind of puts a, puts a pin in that idea, pops it. Uh, by pointing out to pointing out this idea that no matter how um, we lock ourselves into an imminent frame, we are such beings as uh, we'll always long for the transcendent, and sometimes the transcendent will break in upon us because we're made in the image of God. We and reality has two parts: it has a transcendent level and a an imminent level. 
And if you try to smash everything into the internet level, he says it, it explodes. And he's got this uh, phrase called the Nova effect. So it's this, um, in the 18 and 1900s, as this imminent frame is closing down, they found that it was not, not true to reality. So rather than um, the secularization theory said that science will eliminate the, the felt need for religion. So as science grows, religion will disappear. Uh, but that didn't happen. And actually the felt need for religion exploded out of this, this imminent box that, it was, um, that was closing down upon people. And in the 18th and 19th uh, century, uh, religious options just multiplied all, of, all over the place. New religions um, grew up and had many followers and new, new ways of, of living life you know, outside of religions grew up. So that would, I would say yes, yes and no. So there, there, there is a diminishing plausibility of religion uh, affected by technology and science. But the Nova effect is also true because, because reality has two realms and we exist in both of them. Things will, um, will always be longing for the actual real, even um, if our system of unreality is almost watertight. And sometimes, as Taylor says also, sometimes that you only find that happening in, in moments, moments of... Um, preciousness or poignancy or despair or loss uh, at birth, at funerals, times when the imminent frame seems um, more hollow and less all-sufficient than it usually does. And then people will, will reach out for something beyond the material or even at you know, being mm. pierced by a, a moving song or a, a gripping film. There, he paints this picture as that even in the imminent frame, as powerful as it is, you're never safe from the transcendent. It can, it can get you because that is reality. Mm -hmm. <coughs> a Secular Age is a, is a great book. I would recommend it. Who is Charles Taylor? Charles Taylor is a Canadian philosopher. He's a Canadian philosopher. He's a Catholic. He's, he's written long, important books that are not always so easy to read because he's so smart. What made, you, what made you decide to study him? I came here as a student and everyone was talking about him. And I found the things that they said uh, helped understand, helped me understand reality as few other things had. So I thought I better go to the source. Um, James Smith has a book called How Not to Be Secular. Uh, he found a secular age so important by Charles Taylor, a secular age. Jamie Smith, another professor, wrote a smaller, a secular age is like that. How not to be secular is, is that. Uh, it's an introduction to the secular age. So read that first, then go to the primary source material. It's a very good- uh, What's the other one called? What's the James Smith one? Jamie Smith, his book is How Not to Be Secular. And who's Jamie Smith? And who's Jamie Smith? He's a professor. I think Calvin yeah. at Calvin College. Yes. Thank you. There's one more. Do you still have time for another yep. question? Yeah. Let's do another. So Jamie and Helen from Australia asking. Scotland. 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 Sorry, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> one of them is from Australia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Helen, Jamie. 
do you think we as Christians are required to behave as the cognitive minority at all times? What might that cost us? What would we gain? Do you think we Christians are in, uh, inclined to behave required, required to behave as a cognitive minority at all times? What might it cost us? And what might we gain? We gain by not doing that. I suppose by being a cognitive minority. Interesting. Uh, hmm. Well, if you zoom, if you zoom way out, like on Google Earth, you can see the whole Earth. I'm not sure Christians are a cognitive minority. Maybe you would be. Uh, if you zoom in on the West, <laughs> certainly are. But if you keep zooming in on different pockets in the West, you are not. In the UK, you are. Um, up in Scotland, probably you are. Um, if you take a, throw a dart at Africa, you might hit a community in which you would not be, um, or the countries of Asia. So I, I think we all live in different places, and our experience of being a cognitive minority will be different. And the answer to this question will will be very specific to those places, I imagine, because the pressure increases according to the surroundings. And the surroundings are always changing. Um, culture and its, its views shift over time against the backdrop of the views of Christians in, in that area, which is really a way of saying that that question is very complicated. Um, but your question is, about being a cognitive minority, what could be gained by being a cognitive minority and what might be lost, what um, something like that. Yeah, do you guys have anything to say? I have, I have more thoughts about your questions, but Jamie and Helen, if you wanna chime in, it'd be nice to hear your voices. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Andy. Um, that is a... uh, I, oh yeah, can, you can hear me too. Is there something I can say? I don't know how to do this because there's so many people. Yes. Ter someone. Tara, is that you? Tara. Tara, apologies. <laughs> yeah. Hey, could I Hi. just pause, pause you, Tara, and yeah. just let uh, Jamie and Helen, I think they chimed in on this question. Jamie, this is your question, oh, okay. right? Go ahead. That's, that's very kind, Andy. Thank you. Um, can you hear me all right? We can hear you. Those are Aussie right. tones. Right. Right. Um, Great. <laughs> so I guess I guess what I'm what I'm thinking is your your shift through from stages one through four, and then your fifth one is sort of here's the application of how we do living in the supernatural now. Um, this how then how now shall we live? Um, and that seems to be, at least in my experience, is as a cognitive minority. It's, it's even, even within Christian circles, I think as, as you were sort of saying, Christian materialism is, is right. And then outside of Christianity, materialism is the way that the Western modernity certainly sees, sees the world. And so living as a, as a Christian who sees the supernatural as here and now is very much a minority. And you're, I guess the, the way that you unpacked the action plan of 
pray, wait, and act, that to me, uh, as, as someone who may well put that into action, there are real consequences for me. And I guess my, I guess my question is sort of uh, asking you to maybe unpack a little bit more of what that would what that would look like what do you think would be the the consequences of that for everyone because i i think you're right in that christians that do see the supernatural as a, a here and now is very that's a that's a more more of a minority than just christians in general so i i think it is quite small actually and i think that the the story of Edith Schaefer and her her act is that's a bit of a that's a bit of a tell of how how rare it is or how unusual it is to mm-hmm. actually behave as if as if the supernatural is right here. Uh, yeah. And so I, I think I think in in my life and in my work I, and I work for a church. If if I went with pray wait and then act, I'm, I may find myself without a job. <laughs> it, like there's, there's real consequences to, to this. What, what do you think uh, might, how, how then shall we live? <laughs> I guess. That's a good question. Yeah. Well, I can't be too specific. No, but you should course. definitely come down to Greenham and we can talk about that. <laughs> um, but I, I, I relate to that. Yeah, we, we would all, if we, if we really became holy people, it would look very strange, I think. I, I think we would have to um, face lots of difficult choices. If we really, in, in the midst of the fallen world and having the fall within ourselves and within our families and friends and, and contemporaries, we probably underestimate the degree that our experience of life and our ideas have been bent and broken. And to really have those restored and put right, I don't think it would be like tapping out a dent in a car, but that there would be um, dramatic change. So stepping if you want to step towards the kind of things that the shapers were talking about and living out, making a dramatic and difficult choice and change, is it, it's fair game. Mm-hmm. A lot of that will depend on your context. Uh, where you grew up and where you are now, yeah, it could, it could be quite difficult. There, there could be, um, that, that's a very different context than your, um, what you might, experience out the breed. Where I grew up, it was, Christianity was more of the, um, in the air. But I remember working for a church. <coughs> we raised, um, we raised support. I worked for a campus ministry. And then I started reading all this debris stuff and decided that I was going to stop sending out support letters and um, asking people for money. And instead, I would just pray. And whatever money came, that would, I would live on that. And it was, People had interesting reactions. No one really liked it, I think. 
Lindsay may have liked it because she married me, um, but, and now we're both workers. But I think people thought, well, that's strange. You know, just like Edith stopping Dawn from um, calling the taxi, why don't you just do it? It's amazing how implausible you can make something like that sound just with a shrug and the, why don't you just do what everyone else is doing? And it wasn't a big uh, like argument in the church either, just whether to let you do that. Like, wasn't that a thing? Like, they made a special exception for you? So Lindsay's saying, uh, wasn't there some debate about whether I should be able to do this? Uh, perhaps it was behind closed doors. They, I know that after I left, they disallowed anyone from doing this. Now you have to raise support and you have to do it in a certain way. Um, so I think it was not really accepted, but it was something that I felt convicted to do. Um, just a, that's just the story. Not that we should all stop raising support if you're raising support. I think the point is you should pray, wait, and act to answer how, how you need to pray, wait, and act. And the Lord will lead you into his reality more and more throughout the circumstances of your lives. I mean, that's kind of the, the thesis I have tonight. Um, the Lord is the teacher and he, and he will teach you. You're in good hands. Um, it's very normal to want more certainty than, than we have and to want it all spelled out. But that's not the world that the Lord made. We, we walk by faith and not by sight. And the, the thing about that is not to find a way to walk by sight, but to learn to walk by faith. And probably that can only, you should, you should plan and think and pray and talk to people and ask questions at lectures, but probably you can only really learn that and become the kind of person you will have become when you've learned it by doing something, I would imagine, or not doing something. But whatever you do, you should definitely come visit us down here in Gretham again. Bring, bring a child. Thanks, Andy. Thanks so much, man. Tara, yes. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Tara, we can hear you. You can hear me now. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about those questions you asked us all at the beginning, and I found them very interesting questions. Um, and then listening to your talk, and um, I suppose for me, this last year with COVID and being more isolated, I just wondered how it has been for you at Labrie and for other people whether you found that God's working more strongly in your lives. Cause it's, she's really transformed my life this year through this experience. And um, I've come much more into faith, much stronger faith, much stronger trust, much stronger um, and manifestation in ways. Things have, you know, I've gone through really some difficult trials but he, I really have felt his presence there helping and a certain joy has still been able to be there despite it. Now I'm thinking you're the pray, work, wait, and, and act. And I'm sort of wondering if that's similar, like uh, if praying, for me, I, I surrender. So if praying, my, my prayers are often surrender prayers. And then um, waiting is, is, yeah, sometimes I've had to wait a whole year for something to happen, but then it happens and it's better than anything I could have ever dreamt. And <laughs> so it, there was something about having to just persevere and wait and um, yeah. So I suppose for me, it's surrender and trust, waiting, trusting and gratitude always is part of it. Every day I, I find things to give thanks for. 
Um, and that's really made a difference as well. And I, I, I'm just curious as to whether anyone else has found this year's deepen their faith more strongly um, and whether they have really felt the Lord working in, in their lives in this kind of, you know, more miraculous way. Mm. Because we've had to kind of let go and trust more because we we're, we're, we haven't been in control this year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some of the gaps mm. that have been closed were opened up this year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, because of modernity, this is this has been a very um, the first real modern pandemic, and we've uh, brought about partially by our interconnectedness, our technology. Uh, yeah. I'm sure for a lot of us, we would echo a, a tell a similar story. Certainly for us at Labrie, this has been certainly my most challenging year. I've only been here six years, but uh, we at the Manor have had great challenges. Some of you will be aware of the fire inspection that happened in the spring, just as uh, the COVID wave, the first wave was really breaking. We had a house full of students we didn't know if we were going to need to keep them for a few months, if they weren't going to be able to leave. Um, so we were having all these intense discussions about what to do, send them away. What is what is COVID? We don't even know. Um, and then we had this big fire inspection. And I thought it was going to mean like, well, we need to get new um, extinguishers. And, you know, that'll be a certain expense. And then we'll pay that expense. And actually, uh, the floors, the ceilings, the walls, the doors, the signage, the lighting, the, the smoke detectors, uh, we had to get new everything. So the house, ever since we sent those students away, we've basically been um, working on a to-do list that that fire inspection gave us. And it, uh, the bill is about a hundred thousand pounds. And that's not, uh, that's, we've never had that kind of money. Uh, that's not the kind of money you see around here, but we, had that kind of money within a few weeks of sending those students away. And it was just this, a very, um, I hesitate to say the word, word miraculous, but it was an extraordinary um, outpouring of, of the Lord's sustenance, his, his sustaining grace. And we've, we've continued to experience that all year in, in the midst of increased trial. And we've had lots of prayers go unanswered, but there have also been lots of prayers that have been answered. Um, invisible ways. So you're, you asked about us, how this has been for us. I, I think it has been a strengthening time. It's been a challenging time. And beyond that, I don't think any of us really know how far all the meetings will go as the consequences of things continue to, to roll on. But we've certainly seen the Lord's hand. And I think we, we faced this Labrie in its 50th year has probably faced, I'm, I've only been here six years, but maybe the, um, certainly one of its greatest challenges. But I think we as, we as a worker team are all convinced that this, this is not the end of English Labrie, that the Lord has given us clear signs that he's mm. as, as clear as we can see, that he's, he's extending our, our lease on the manor, metaphorically, that he, he, wants, he wants you guys to come back. Mm -hmm and for the work to continue here in some shape. Why don't we end there? Thank you all for listening. Go in peace. Thank you.
Is this on mute now? Is this work finally? Hey, hi. Hey. Oh, good. Okay, come on, let's say hi. That's all. It's good to see you. Hey, hey. Really miss you guys. <laughs> yeah. okay, I say hi and bye as well. We, hi. We Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello, everyone. Paige, I like your sweater. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Hey, Paige, you're, that's a very Lindsay sweater. Well <laughs> no, I thought I was like, good on you. I was actually about to change. I'm like, mm, if Lindsay's on, I should. <laughs> I'm wearing something similar to it now. Perfect. Vasilius, hi. Yes. <laughs> good to see you in Portugal. Uh, how's it going there? So, are you surviving COVID? <laughs> but I'm mute. Pat Harvey, hello, Pat. This is silly. Jamie and Helen, turn on some lights. Grace, Pepe, you look like you're in a basement. <laughs> Grace has been driven into a bunker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in a bar. There's Rob. Rob in a car. Hey, Rob. In a car. <laughs> Hi, Rob. <laughs> Hi, Sue. Hi, Donna. Mr. Wheeler, right on right hand side. Yeah, I'm commuting. Is this everybody? No, no, this is, uh, there's a lot more. It was 113. Wow. Wow. Well, you did make the upgrade. Yeah. Well, yeah. Maurice, can you can you explain why you look like you're in a survival bunker? I can, I can. Can you hear me? I'm in a barn studio. My grandfather okay. built it out, but yeah, it's it's uh not it's insulated, but it's pretty bare, bare bones. Okay. But it does look well insulated. Yeah. It is, yeah, it's still cold though. So wow. I don't know. If you're wondering why we're not addressing you, we can only see about 10 of you. I think that's all that's on there now. Yeah, but there's no people, but not on the video. Uh, we have 34. Rob, are you driving? We can't oh, hear you, buddy. Don't you're not on mute. On mute. Can't hear you, but the beard is looking great. <laughs> Maybe we can't hear him. Oh. I just love staring at people on the mm -hmm. so Hi, Mark. Good to see you. Good to see you there. <laughs> Calling in from all the way from the There is lighting in Scotland. That's good to see you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we fixed that. We fixed that for you guys. <laughs> I can uh, I can talk. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah so I was I was running you through the car audio, so I, it was probably going to do a lot of feedback. Anyway. 
I, uh, I had a little time zone math issue, so I, I only came in in the Q&A, but I'm really looking forward to going back and listening to the lecture, Andy. Thank you. Yeah, it'll be on the podcast in a few days, probably. Hey, is Jim still in there? Yeah, I'm here. Hi, Jim. I sent you an email a few, uh, maybe like an hour ago. So, okay, um, great. You know, no pressure. <laughs> Whenever you get a chance. <laughs> Rob, you didn't email the rest of us. Just, just Jim. Yeah, Jim, yeah, you know, he's, he's a little more important. Yeah. No, it's it's great to see everyone's faces. Top of the ring. You're in Nashville, Yes, yes. Actually, just drove down to Franklin uh, to get some knives sharpened. So I'm actually in Franklin, but yes, basically okay. Nashville. Great. Lovely. Good. Okay, I'll check out your email. I'll give you an answer to probably tomorrow morning. But it'll be nighttime. All right. It, it, okay. it, don't get your hopes up. It's it's very exciting, but you know. Okay. Oh, All right. right. That, See sounds, that sounds good. Check it out. <laughs> Check it out. Check it out. All right. Oh, wonderful. Jamie, you probably emailed me too, so you can tell me. <laughs> as well. The amount, of, the amount of emails. Carl, I sent you oh, an email. Yeah. Oh, it's June. Oh, last year. 
Yeah. 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 That that is a long because that is a long way. I met Ronald before I met Schaefer. Oh, yeah. oh, wonderful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, this will all go on the podcast. So if anyone has anything else to say. <laughs> anyway, thank you, everyone. It's lovely to see you. Thank you. Very, yeah. <laughs> very, excited, very exciting to have the global connection. Yes. Yeah. 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 Bye, bye. Bye, bye. All right, everyone. I think we're going to pull the plug. See you next Thank week. You. Same Bye. time, same place. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye, Enjoy your Tesco's. Enjoy your Tesco's. <laughs> <laughs>